Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. This week I want to focus on the purpose that underpins a healthy impact culture. Uh, We started last week by looking at the first of four components of a healthy impact culture and we looked at the research component. Uh, This week we're diving into purpose. Now, when I was researching the book, this for me was one of the most fascinating topics that uh, I got a chance to really delve into. Uh, And it's a deep and diverse literature. It really resonated with me in particular, though, when I discovered that all of the different definitions essentially boil down to the idea that cultures are about collective meaning making. Now, in the chapter that you're about to hear, I talk about three ideas that can help you to make impact a priority. The first is to think about coaching. And when I say this, I'm not talking about mentoring. Uh, Now, mentoring, of course, uh, hopefully you understand, is uh, this idea that I go to a more senior colleague or at least someone who has been there before me, who's a few steps further along, whatever path I want to take. Uh, So I might have an impact mentor who is really good at impact, done a load of stuff that is really relevant to the kind of thing that I do uh, and get help and advice from them. At the same time, I might have an academic mentor as well from within my discipline, uh, etc. The key thing here, though, is that this is about advice giving and help. Uh, and they will empower and uh, enable you to do things on your own. But uh, but there's this kind of advisory element to a mentoring relationship. Whereas in coaching, it's all about creating a safe and insp- empowering space for you to articulate your goals and for you to then, with their help, find your own answers and remain accountable to them, uh, getting help as you go and compassion uh, to implement the things that you decide to do. And they can give you a bit of help uh, and advice uh, every now and then. But the key thing that the coach is doing is to empower and enable you to achieve your own goals yourself. So a good coach, or mentor for that matter, will empower you to achieve whatever is most important to you, whether or not that includes impact. But going deep with your coach, it is often possible to find deeply held values, identities and motives that intrinsically motivate you to want to engage more with impact. Now, in the previous chapters of the book, I go much more in depth uh, on this idea of purpose than you'll hear just now. Uh, And uh, also in the extended impact culture training course uh, that I run, uh, I do some of this other work. And in particular, what I'm getting people to do in these earlier chapters uh, is to draw a priorities forest. Uh, And you are literally drawing out a forest with trees and roots and canopies and fruit hanging off the trees, etc. But metaphorically, what this is 
enabling you to do is to systematically identify these more deeply held motivations that might be able to empower or motivate you to put more work into your impact. Now, many of the ideas in this chapter are things that team leaders and managers can implement, but if you are an early career researcher uh, or engage with research in some other way, but you don't have that kind of managerial control or power, then I want you to also ask yourself how you might benefit from each of the ideas. So, for example, working with a coach. And if you can't get a coach through your university, in my experience, it's pretty rare that you can do that. Uh, and if you can't afford a private coach, uh, I currently have a coach. I pay him £50 per session. Um, so uh, if you go to the business world and you get someone quoting you £400 per session, which someone did to me, uh, keep looking because <laughs> it isn't that expensive. Uh, but nonetheless, um, £50 a session is beyond many people's reach. Uh, so you could consider creating a peer coaching programme. Uh, and you're going to have to get a little bit of help and training on how to be a good coach. Uh, but the point is that you don't have to be more experienced than the person you're coaching because it's not about advice giving. Remember, it's about creating this safe space in which people can articulate and then find their own ways of reaching their goals. Uh, and I'm actually working on creating a peer coaching or mentoring, I'm not sure, it's maybe a bit of both, scheme at the moment for the impact community. It's not quite ready yet, I want to trial it, make sure it really works before I launch this because it's a bit of a high-risk thing to do and a lot of work. Uh, but hopefully later in 2022 we will have something like that. But don't wait for me. Uh, if you're inspired by this chapter, go and work out how you can uh, do this with someone else. Maybe it's, uh, I'll coach you if you coach me and uh, we'll buy a book on how to coach um, uh, and, uh, and swap notes on that as the first step in the process. It could be as simple as that. So let's listen to the chapter. Chapter 12. Purpose for a healthy impact culture. A healthy impact culture has deep roots. An institution's culture tells you a lot about its purpose. An institution's purpose tells you a lot about its identity and the values that inform the priorities it pursues as it seeks that purpose. Each of the many subcultures you will find across a university will tell their own story about the purpose and priorities of that group or its leaders. Clear purpose is in the foundation of a healthy impact culture because culture is fundamentally about meaning-making. As a result, many psychologists and sociologists study culture by understanding how people find meaning as individuals, on the basis of their own perceptions, collectively, on the basis of social norms and shared perceptions, and through their relationship with objects. There is a rich literature on the meaning of work. See my paper with Professor Yohan Faisi in further reading if you want references you can follow up. From the individual psychological perspective, this ranges from research on beliefs, values and attitudes towards work, to the subjective experience and significance of work. From a more sociological perspective, meaning is constructed through social interaction and reflects social norms and shared value systems that ascribe meaning to certain types of work. Ultimately, meaning is sense-making. 
in terms of how a person makes sense of or understands something, or perceives its significance in a given social or other context. This process is necessarily subjective, involving both rationality and feelings, as Dr Nicholas Maxwell, emeritus reader from University College London, told me when I interviewed him. If we're going to be rational, then it is absolutely essential that we attend to our feelings and our desires, because we can't hope to discover what is of value if we don't. But of course not everything that feels good is good, and not everything we desire is desirable. So what rationality really involves is an interaction between feelings and desires, emotions and motivations, and our intellect. What we really need to do is to put the mind and the heart in touch with each other, so we develop mindful hearts and a heartfelt mind. We are all wired to search for patterns in noise, find structures to hold onto in chaos, and find meaning through whatever we fill our lives with. If we can find no meaning in our work, then we are likely to keep changing jobs until we find our purpose. Some of us find that purpose on an individual level through our research, teaching, or impact, whether that warm glow of satisfaction resides primarily within ourselves as a sense of intrinsic esteem, or in the knowledge that we did something of value out there, in our students, stakeholders, or discipline. Others find that purpose primarily through our connection with others as we work together towards a collective endeavour, and know that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, that we could not achieve alone. In reality, most of us find meaning in many of these different ways simultaneously, as we refine our sense of self, and as we pursue different objects of desire, as pessimist philosophy would put it, in dialogue with others who are very different to us. An impact culture is co-created by many people at once, each negotiating our own sense of meaning with ourselves and each other as we pursue knowledge and impact. How we make meaning, and hence how we make culture, is influenced by co-workers, leaders, communities, and family relationships. These relationships may provide cues about how to interpret work experiences and to derive meaning through a process of exploring different interpretations based on alternative values with those we trust in our social network. In many cases, the people we discuss our experiences with are in-groups that help us establish a clearer sense of our own identity in relation to our membership of a particular group. Having a sense of belonging to a group can help people find meaning as they experience a common identity, shared fate, or connection with others. As we form and understand our own many identities and the values that underpin and shape our purpose, we have a more secure foundation from which to start trying to understand and empathise with others on this deeper level, even if they have a very different purpose to us. Dr Kristen Neff describes this as finding our common humanity as we move from a focus on our own challenges to see that everyone has their own unique challenges as part of what it is to be human. Instead of focusing on the difference, we are right and they are wrong, we focus on the vulnerabilities we all share, we are all imperfect and make mistakes, and open a channel of empathy at the basic human level to try and see the other person as like us, rather than one of them. 
We are building the foundations for a more compassionate culture. More on this in chapter 14. To be compassionate, this community does not have to be unitary or homogeneous, as most university strategies would have us believe. If a healthy impact culture is based on the purpose of those who create it, there must be room for different purposes and priorities, and not all of these will be compatible. It is possible to have very different cultures within a single organisational unit, pursuing different and even opposing priorities. For example, I was once a member of the Sustainability Research Institute at the University of Leeds when it was part of a school of earth and environment that had a world-leading geology group specialising in oil and gas exploration. We were turning out research papers and graduates from different parts of the same school that were simultaneously trying to exploit the world's remaining fossil fuels and close down the entire fossil fuel industry. As you can imagine, staff meetings could be entertaining. What struck me most from these discussions was the deeply held values that underpinned the curiosity-driven identities of our oil and gas colleagues who were pushing the boundaries of geological knowledge whilst creating economic prosperity and training graduates for high-quality jobs. The contrast between the two subcultures in this school meant it was meaningless to talk about the culture of the School of Earth and Environment at the University of Leeds, but as a member of the Sustainability Research Institute, I knew exactly what we stood for as a group. This was not to say that we all had the same purpose or priorities, but they were complementary. Some of us prioritised research versus teaching or impact. Some staff were activists who would openly protest against UK government policies, while others valued their independence and objectivity as scientists who would only ever advise the government on the basis of their own peer-reviewed research. Some did research to find solutions to real-world problems, while others rejected the notion of any singular solution, preferring to critique how we generate and use knowledge in society. Sometimes these differences led to arguments, but the shared values underpinning our work, for example, inclusion, compassion, and the belief that research should be used for social good, however we might interpret that, meant that these were usually friendly arguments. Despite the fact that we were all studying sustainability, not all of us prioritised impact to the same extent. Some in the group were much more curiosity-driven and less interested in the immediate application of their theories and methods. Understanding my own purpose enabled me to make peace with those who critiqued what they saw as my simplistic focus on solutions and see the contribution I made to the group. Understanding our purpose as a group enabled us to find our place in the international community making it easier to work alongside our oil and gas colleagues. Diagnostic questions about the purpose and priorities that underpin your impact culture. I invite you to delve into your own sense of purpose more deeply in the next chapter, but for now I would like you to think about your own priorities and then the priorities of the group you are in at whatever organisational scale you have chosen. Finally. I'll ask you to think about the interaction between your priorities and those of your group to identify any important conflicts you may need to navigate. If you feel particularly out of step with your colleagues, I hope the self-knowledge that comes from answering these questions 
will help you find a place where you can belong with others who share more complementary priorities. First, ask yourself about your own professional priorities. What are your professional identities? For example, might you describe yourself as a researcher, teacher, explorer, mentor, peacemaker, devil's advocate or activist? What values or character traits do you enact in these identities? For example, do you value curiosity, altruism, empathy or competitiveness? Which of these identities and values are most important to you? For example, do you see yourself primarily as a curiosity-driven explorer or an empathy-driven activist? Do you prioritise time and tasks that enable you to express these parts of yourself? For example, do you somehow always find enough time to write papers or influence policy based on your research? Do you rarely find time to devote to these priorities? For example, do you tend to put off your writing and never find time to engage in policy processes? Might engaging more with impact help you express your identity or values as a researcher? For example, might you find it motivational to start a reading group or seminar series on impact to learn from colleagues, attend some impact training, or get involved in school's liaison work? Are there any tasks that wouldn't take too much time that would enable you to generate more impact? For example, might you run a session linked to your research in your local school? Are there impact-related tasks that you could justify as part of another aspect of your job? For example, might you be able to add some stakeholder engagement to an existing research project? How can you make time for the other things that are most important to you? For example, could you join the board of your town's local development trust or museum's trust that meets once a quarter so you can give something back to your community from your research? In the past, when have you succeeded in making time for your own priorities? For example, think of when you managed to clear enough space to finish your last paper. What was the result? Why don't you reread the paper to remind yourself what you can achieve when you put your mind to it? How did you make the time then? And what are the barriers preventing you from doing the same thing again now? For example, perhaps you went on a writing retreat to write that last paper, but your family situation means you can't do that now. How could you overcome those barriers to make enough quality time again? For example, perhaps you could block a day per week with an out-of-office reply and apply the same discipline to writing in those days as you did when you were on the retreat. Next, I invite you to ask about the priorities of your group or institution. How would you describe the most common identities and values in your group at whatever organisational scale you chose in the introduction to part two? For example, would you describe many in your group as curious or complaining researchers, inspired or harassed teachers, victimised or valued members of a community? What does your group ask you to prioritise, and what does that say about its identity and values? For example, are you asked to prioritise impact on a regular basis, or is the messaging always focused on research or teaching? What are you given time to prioritise or rewarded foremost, 
And does that tell you something else about the priorities of the group? For example, despite being asked to prioritise impact, are you only given time and workload to do teaching and research? Do people in your group typically engage with or avoid impact? What do you think motivates them to do this? For example, does one person tend to pick up all the impact-related tasks in the group? Or does the group avoid mentioning impact once the research has been funded so they can focus on the research? Or are group members regularly bringing new opportunities for impact into the group and working together to exploit opportunities as they arise? Does your group mainly use the word impact, or do you have a richer vocabulary? For example, is impact so pervasive as an implicit priority in everything that you do that you talk about the application and benefits to stakeholders whenever you speak about research using specific vocabulary relating to the benefits you expect to see? In what ways, in what contexts, and how often do people in your group talk about impact? For example, do you only speak about impact, using the word impact, in committee meetings about research assessments or when discussing funding applications? Or do you find your conversations as a group constantly coming back to how you can make a difference, who will use your research or other applications of your work? There's no need to score yourself or your group, but if you've been able to answer at least some of these questions, you should now understand the extent to which impact is a priority for you and your group. If impact is not a priority, then the goal hierarchy theory, chapter 10, would suggest that you have two options. One, own how you feel and stop pretending to care about impact, focus on what you love most and let others prioritise impact. Or two, find ways of integrating impact into your most important priorities so you enjoy generating impact on your own terms. In the next chapter, you'll be able to explore these options in greater depth. Finally, think about how your priorities interact with those of your group. If impact is a priority for you, but not for most of the others in your group, how does that affect your motivation and sense of belonging in the group? Are there other individuals in the group who feel the same way? or others you can collaborate with from outside the group who would empower you to enact your priorities and achieve more impact from your work. Not all of the answers to these questions will be comfortable, but the insights will enable you to understand how impact fits into your priorities and the priorities of those you work with. A healthy impact culture can prioritise very different types of impact for many different reasons. Because it is a priority, impacts happen naturally and regularly, and they come from you and the group, not from external pressure. What could you do to make impact more of a priority for you? What actions could you take right now? What actions could you plan or talk to someone about? How could you overcome the barriers that are preventing you from taking these actions? Three ideas to make impact a priority. To inspire you to come up with a few concrete actions of your own, here are three ideas of my own, combined with ideas I have heard from people I have trained and interviewed as I've researched this book. Idea one, 
Engage researchers in a coaching process to identify forms of engagement and impact that they might find intrinsically motivating. Start by engaging with the person in charge of the group or unit that you want to engage with, so you design a process that contributes to their goals and you can understand the broader context and pressures the group might be under. Get them to co-design the process with you as far as possible. It will have to be about more than just impact and you will need to draw on the help of others in your team to meet these wider needs. Consider who you will reach out to. Ask if you might do this for the staff you line manage. I offer coaching to all my new starters, both academic and professional services staff, though I'm careful to point out the power dynamic and make it clear that this is not something I require or expect if it feels uncomfortable. As a result, only around a third of my staff take me up on this. The first session is designed to test the water and see if they want to proceed, and I emphasise all the good reasons why people prefer not to enter this sort of relationship with their line manager to try and make it easy for them to back out if needed. I usually give them a copy of my book, The Productive Researcher, beforehand and structure our early discussions around things that arise for them as they read. But the key thing about coaching is that they set their own goals and you enable them to reach these goals themselves, with you primarily in listening and questioning mode. I usually agree six sessions, I schedule them once a month, which we review at the end in case people need more. It is worth getting some training or reading a book on coaching if you want to avoid slipping into a mentoring role, though there will often be moments when it is appropriate for you to provide specific guidance. Alternatively, you might want to identify opinion leaders within different research groups and career stages, from early career researchers to the professoriate. You will need to consult carefully to identify these people, but if successful, this approach increases the likelihood that any changes in attitude and behaviour around impact might influence others around them. Of course, the drawback is that you end up working with the usual suspects and may work with more senior than junior colleagues who may already have more privileges and opportunities than their colleagues around them. Instead, you might prioritise a cross-section of staff from different career stages and groups who you think have most potential. Justifying why you are doing this if you are not part of their group might be tricky. You may be able to refer to a role if you are a director of impact, an impact champion, or in a professional services role linked to impact, though in this case it will be important to stress that the process is designed to enable them to achieve more than just impact. Additionally, you might agree to create a wider initiative with the head of unit, which could be about raising the profile of the university coaching system across the group while trialling some more local coaching with you. A cross-section of colleagues could be selected to have the opportunity to work with you, which of course they could decline if they wished to. Proceed with one-to-one -one engagements with researchers in listening mode to understand their priorities and passions whether or not these include impact. Seek to understand the pressures they are under, the challenges they face, and the barriers preventing them achieving their goals. Consider subtly structuring your conversation using a coaching model such as GROW, G-R-O-W, identifying goals, 
assessing the current reality, including strengths, stroke capacity, as well as issues, identify alternative options that could get the person from their current reality to their goals, and decide what they and you will do first to achieve change. Provide help and build trust by doing what you can to report and address concerns with the head of their group and anyone else you can draw upon within the institution to provide help. Check on the actions the researcher agreed to do themselves and support them to do these as far as you can. Aim to deliver at least one tangible benefit per person, where relevant getting them to bring in others with similar issues so you can help their colleagues too. Focus on addressing the issues they care most about, where you think you can both make progress, rather than necessarily privileging solutions that could enable impact. As you make progress with initial actions, start to identify impact opportunities that would contribute towards their priorities or connect with their passions. For example, unlocking new funding or data collection opportunities, engaging with the creative arts for public engagement, or joining a stakeholder event. As part of the process, listen to concerns about impact and allow pushback. Maybe now is not the time for this individual or group to engage. Alternatively, you may be able to provide support or training as needed for your colleagues to engage in the opportunities you identify. Keep encouraging the researchers you are working intensively with to draw others with similar issues or interests into the activities you are facilitating. Consider convening a group meeting to share experiences and opportunities more widely in the group. Finally, provide long-term, light-touch support, checking in to see how activities are working over time and helping them adapt and troubleshoot where things are not going according to plan. Idea 2. Organise internal impact-related events that will engage researchers with varying levels of interest and experience with impact. Impact or challenge-themed workshops and sandpits to stimulate cross-institutional collaborations are increasingly common, but can have unintended negative consequences if not run well. If you are running a sandpit event to allocate seed corn funding to new teams, you either need to run an intensive vetting process or design the event to enable people to evaluate each other carefully before committing to a team. Without this, you can end up with perfectly matched teams of experts who are unable to work with each other. If you have an application process for your sandpit event, you need to go beyond expertise to understand people's epistemologies and underpinning values and beliefs if you want to avoid endless arguments about the how and why of the research. Alternatively, you need to enable teams to form more organically, so people have time and space to evaluate whether they get along and might enjoy working together. While you can create these sorts of spaces through team-building activities in an event, there is something artificial about the speed at which you get to know people, which is why I personally avoid sandpits whenever I can. I will admit that my perception was coloured by a horrific sandpit experience where we all had to do a painting, swap with our neighbour, and then rip their painting in half. They didn't force us to do this, but the moment they told us to do this, and we all froze, has never left me. 
I then got stuck in a group with one of those unbearable people who doesn't know what they're talking about and covers up their ignorance by talking pompously about themselves all the time. I was group leader, but there was no mechanism for choosing who was in or out of our team. We won the funding, but the thought of working with this researcher was more than I could bear, so I withdrew and handed leadership to someone else in the end. Life is too short to collaborate with people who make you miserable. Instead, creating a regular safe space in which people can discuss ideas and get to know each other is, in my opinion, a better way of building new relationships. After all, that's what teams are meant to be about. In the same way I don't commit to any kind of personal relationship with someone I've just met, I think we should have the time and space to get to know potential collaborators before diving into any kind of commitment. I personally like the idea of a monthly internal impact seminar series focusing on the methods for generating impact illustrated with case study examples with the promise that attendees will leave with new methods they can use to generate their own impacts. The University of Auckland recently launched a monthly webinar series called Impact Through Culture Change, which includes external speakers integrating experience from both academics and professional services colleagues. You might also want to include sessions on impacts that have failed or led to unintended consequences to facilitate conversations about ethics, avoid mistakes being repeated, provide support and help to those negatively affected by so-called grim pacts, and build capacity for better future practice. Alternatively, you could speak to whoever organises your departmental seminar series to ask if they can include at least one impactful project in the next semester, with a reflection on the process of generating impact from the speaker. Ensure you attend this session, if you can, to make yourself identifiable to colleagues and exploit opportunities for a discussion after the seminar. Another idea is to use monthly impact seminars and annual events as an opportunity to collect information others might find useful or inspiring for communications, more on this in a moment, or an online repository, moving beyond case studies to identify lessons about what worked or didn't work, methods used, and tips for others who want to generate similar impacts. Finally, many universities now have an annual impact showcase or award ceremony, targeting different career stages and different types of research and impacts to celebrate and inspire colleagues. Beware, however, that only a certain type of researcher is likely to be attracted to the idea of applying for a prize or being celebrated so publicly and there is a danger that the selection process further embeds the idea that certain types of impact or researcher count more than others. For me, if you're going to run an event like this that contributes to a healthy impact culture, you will want to think about how you might use it in a more disruptive way. For example, to highlight the sorts of researchers and impacts that are rarely celebrated. University College Dublin has run an impact competition for many years. Part of the prize is a day doing impact training with me. However, when I talked to the 2020 prize winners, many felt deeply uncomfortable about the idea of entering the work they had done to help vulnerable groups into a competition. 
They feared that by focusing on their role as researchers in generating impact, this could come across as exploitative. David Bennett, who now leads on the prize for UCD, explained to me how he was tackling this issue. He said, Ultimately, it all comes back to empathy. In some ways, it's great that researchers have these anxieties because it shows that they genuinely care about those who are affected by their work. To allay fears like this, I think it's crucial that researchers are open with stakeholders about the competition and its purpose. In recent years, we've published several case studies whose beneficiaries could be described as vulnerable, including survivors of abuse and people suffering from poor mental health. Some might perceive these stories as exploitative, but we always try to frame them as a way of raising awareness. We also ensure the beneficiaries are listed as collaborators in the case study and are invited to the competition's prize-giving ceremony. We want it to be a positive experience for everyone, and so far it has been. David went on to tell me how the competition had helped shift attitudes towards impact at UCD. The case study competition has played a significant role in embedding an impact culture across UCD. It is elective and culminates in an event that showcases research that has made a difference, so researchers can see that engaging with the so-called impact agenda needn't be arduous and can in fact be positive and celebratory. Each year we publish 10 excellent case studies, one winner and nine runners-up and we are always struck by the variety of stories we have to tell. Last year, for example, each published case study was from a different school, which helps researchers across campus realise that impact is incredibly diverse. It can take myriad forms and arise from any type of research. The competition is supported by a series of workshops where we help researchers think more deeply about impact, including how to identify and work with beneficiaries, how to evidence impact, and ultimately how to write a compelling case study. These events are critical to the competition's success. But the competition is only one way that we try to instill an impact culture. We also organise tailored seminars for particular schools or groups of researchers, host masterclasses with external speakers, and develop resources for our online impact toolkit. It's the sum of these efforts that's changing how we think about impact at UCD. Idea 3. Harness the power of your communications in creative new ways. There are many creative ways you can use communications and events to draw people into impact in ways that connect with their intrinsic motives and existing priorities. Seek and celebrate otherwise unsung impacts that colleagues would never normally talk about, let alone submit to a research assessment or a questionnaire from their funders. I will talk more about this in Chapter 16, but it is often the small-scale personal impacts that have the most power to reframe impact as something that can be inherently rewarding, rather than about some kind of performance that has to be polished and placed on a world stage. For example, I heard of a colleague who used their research to help a professional violinist who had been injured in an accident learn to play the violin again. Whether they played on a stage again was irrelevant. Seeing their joy as they were able to reconnect with their instrument was all that mattered. For many colleagues, transforming their students' lives is the thing that matters most to them, whether they can link that directly to their research or not, and despite the fact that their funders are rarely interested. 
Perhaps the most inspiring thing you did all year was give a talk to your child's class at school. Perhaps part of the impact was seeing the look in your own child's eyes as they formed an ambition to do something inspiring with their life in response to what they felt as they listened to you that day. Can we seek out those stories? Moreover, can we seek out our most unsung colleagues whose work is rarely noticed, let alone celebrated, to proactively offer them funding for impact rather than just allocating funds to those who ask, who are often the same people every time? Can we find ways of raising their profile and building their confidence, for example by featuring them in newsletters or creating stories online with the press office and helping them write about their work for outlets such as The Conversation? Talking of the media, can you stimulate conversations between your press office and professional services staff working on impact to enable both groups to work more effectively together to support impact? Currently, press offices tend to get involved at the end of the research cycle and push the reach of our research, missing important opportunities to build awareness and engagement with the research earlier in the process and deliver more targeted and significant benefits for the most relevant groups. To find out more, do an internet search for my Media Impact Toolkit and Guide, which I co-wrote with The Conversation in 2019. In relevant disciplines, it may be possible to encourage and resource the collection of impact evidence in ways that can enable findings to be published in the peer-reviewed literature, further raising the profile of the research and impact, increasing the quality of the evidence you collect, and building the CVs of the researchers who engage in the work. It is possible to write up evaluation papers for top journals that provide important new insights. If you want to see examples, look at Professor Lindsay Stringer's paper with some colleagues and I from 2017 in the journal Land Degradation and Development, or my 2018 paper with Dr. Ros Bryce and Dr. Ruth Machen in Evidence and Policy. Finally, you might try and identify colleagues who are already playing knowledge broker roles to key non-academic communities and enable them to share their knowledge, connections and experience with the wider academic community via seminars, training and mentoring. Provide them with additional resources and support for impact in return for their efforts. The second of my four components of a healthy impact culture is an understanding of how impact fits into your own sense of purpose and priorities and those of your group. In this chapter, you've already begun exploring this. In the next chapter, I want to give you an opportunity to explore this in much greater depth, inspiring you to remember why you were doing what you were doing and enabling you to come up with concrete actions to prevent your institutional culture holding you back and to start changing that culture from the bottom up. Mm -hmm.